Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a producer here at the IAI. And I'm Darcy, I'm also a producer here at the IAI. So today we've got Being Ourselves and Being with Others, a debate featuring critically acclaimed writer Jana Teller, world-leading psychologist and psychiatrist Stefan Prieber, and actress, writer and Booker Prize nominee Sophie Ward. This took place in 2022 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Darcy, tell us a bit about this debate. So this debate essentially explores whether our attachment to kind of independence has undermined the importance of community and kind of like the value of solitude, I guess. I mean, I suppose the, the general feeling is that a, a solitary life equates to an unhappy one. Would you would you go along with that narrative? I, I Ben, would beg to differ. I'm a big advocate for kind of having quite a lot of time on your own to really kind of develop your relationship with yourself and kind of think that there are many, many benefits to being alone. There's that great Proust quote, isn't there? That your social personality is like a creation. It was created by the minds of others. And to a degree, it's like, being around other people is beautiful and there's this kind of ability to share and understand one another but it's also it's interesting to just kind of see who you develop to be when you kind of mm. have the time to do only things that you kind of decide to do and, and you know what comes about in those instances well let's see if the panelists share that perspective but before we get into it remember if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for the debate, Eliane Glazer. Independence is a heady draft, wrote Maya Angelou. We view independence as a virtue, one that we crave for ourselves and admire in others. But is our pursuit of independence a mistake? In the US in the last 50 years, the number living alone has doubled, but we aren't happier for it. A recent study found those living alone had an 80% higher chance of being depressed. Has our attachment to independence undermined the importance of community? Should we take heed from cultures that live under one roof and embrace a more connected form of intergenerational living? Would we be better to accept the decline in family structures and embrace the new wave of co-living spaces? Or is this to fail to take into account how stifling, hierarchical, and oppressive communities can be. So on to our speakers. Jana Teller is a critically acclaimed writer whose novels include Odin's Island and Come, an existential novel about ethics in art and modern life. Sophie Ward is an award-winning actor and writer. She made her feature film debut in Steven Spielberg's Young Sherlock Holmes, while her first novel, Love and Other Thought Experiments, was long-listed for the Booker Prize in 2020. And Stefan Prieber is a world-leading psychologist and psychiatrist based at Queen Mary University 
and is also the director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Mental Health Service Development. So, our speakers have three minutes to put across their pitch and addressing the key question of this debate, which is, is the pursuit of independence a sign of a liberated society or a grave mistake? And I'm going to ask Sophie to go first. Yes, hello. Slightly drawn the, the short <laughs> straw. Um, my main um, area of knowledge in this sense is to do with connections because that's what I... Um, that's my life uh, as a storyteller, both as an actor and as a writer, is um, to prioritise our interaction with each other, our human connections, and what that means, what that is, um, why that's important in our life. And obviously, right at the moment, we're going through post post-pandemic, I don't know, we're just starting again, I have no idea. But um, having been through the last couple of years, we've all found out a different way of living. Um, a lot of people have been more isolated. Some people have been in a very intense situation with um, family uh, and or in their relationships much more than they were used to. Um, and in the meantime, also, our our friends in Silicon Valley are developing more ways for us to be online and um, be part of the future of the metaverse. And in our dystopian fictions, that's sort of how we imagine um, the future, a sort of Fahrenheit 451 in our individual cells communicating um, virtually. And uh, I know a lot of younger people, that's that's their favorite way of being, and they would never leave the metaverse if they could help it. Um, and real life is an interruption for some of the young people I know. Um, but the, the idea of this original thing seemed to be in conflict with each other, that it was some sort of dichotomy that we have, you know, our independence, which I, I'm not sure if that is supposed to be, uh, if that's a euphemism for individuality because uh, they're not the same, um, but it seemed like it was maybe a safer thing to say independence than individuality. We live in a world that is increasingly places an importance on the individual versus our family structures. And um, we're very stuck at the moment, aren't we, about how we take care of each other, how we take care of our aging relatives, how we take care of our children, still develop our careers, and how we go forward in as individuals, but I don't think that the answer is an either-or situation. Um, um, but we are embodied individuals. Our consciousness is part of our bodies, and um, I understand us best when we're looking in each other's faces and um, smelling each other, touching each other, breathing the same COVID-ridden air, and... Um, and enjoying each other as uh, as embodied individuals, uh, certainly supplemented by by the online world that we have. Um, but I'd be interested to know as we go forward to to see how people feel about the individual, uh, whether this has been a good thing going forward about how individual we now are. It's one of the great things about language that has enabled us to become more and more conscious of ourselves as individuals, whatever that might mean, if you think that's a soul or a mind or a consciousness or nothing at all, as Daniel Dennett would have it. 
Thank you, Sophie Ward. So, Jana Teller. Yes. Um, I have to start uh, taking argument with the question because I think the pursuit of independence is what an individual can do. So you can't be a sign of a society liberated or mistaken. So I want to start somewhere else. That pursuit of independence from the point of view of an individual um, has nothing to do with uh, being alone or not. It's a question of being able to make choices that you would like to make um, rather than choices being forced upon you. And I think the more choices that we have or are um, enabled to take that determines our own um, life journeys, the more liberated a society we live in or liberated a situation we live in. And I do think that... Um, it's, that certainly is a sign of a liberated society when people, when every individual has the potential to make that choice. How we then make it? Because it's linked to freedom. And you see, again, freedom is not, hey, freedom from all responsibility, all people, whatever. Um, freedom is to choose what you want to depend upon and who shall depend upon you. I think it's very interesting that Maya Angelou is quoted in the beginning. I'm sure a lot of you know that she's a, a fortunate deceased, but very famous uh, American poet. But she has a really interesting background because she comes from basically next to nothing um, and fought her way up and has gone through lots of interesting uh, personal histories as both a dancer. She was even a prostitute for a period of time, very young. She had a child, I think at the age of 17, but has had an extraordinary life working with both Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, working in Africa for some years. And to me, yes, she does epitomize independence, even though for long periods of her lives, she was dependent on either yeah, her mother, her family, one or more of her husbands that sometimes were abusive or what but she each time managed to take her own decisions to further her life in the direction she wanted to. And though being black at a time where I certainly independence was not straightforward for any black person in America, she managed to take so many decisions on her own. And she became also a poet laureate. I think it was for President Clinton in America. So look at her trajectory of life. That, to me, is the ultimate road of independence. No matter, I don't think she was ever lonely in her life. She was always surrounded by people, you know, loving her, challenging her, whatever. But, um, so, yeah, I do, need, do feel we need to separate the concept of your yeah, independence, of the individual, of freedom, of loneliness and solitude that are whole different. Yeah, the question for me is about choice. Great. And Stefan? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there's a pursuit of independence. Um, when, when we changed the way we, we lived um, in the agricultural revolution, for instance, before we worked as, we lived as tribes, and some people say, I mean, there are no accounts, but uh, happily and longer life expectancies and afterwards, then, then, however, the external circumstances changed and our way of living changed. More recently, when the industrialization came in, it was not because anyone was pursuing independence. No, 
the new industry required smaller families because they couldn't live in large family groups anymore in the new industrialized towns. So that was not a choice. Oh, now I don't want to live within three generations anymore. No, it was. It came upon us. And um, similarly, now we are we are at an age where the overall conditions in which we in which we live change. The um, and, and certain structures of the community are, are less important. And now I think, and that's where, where I disagree, the concept of choice, I think, is um, a, a very clever trick of capitalism to fool us into, um, into um, the consumerism and satisfaction that we live in. I say that in a provocative way. In brackets, I grew up in West Berlin. That will not tell you very much. It was an island surrounded by East Germany, by a communist country. So I'm not romanticizing or uh, idealizing in nostalgia uh, a communist system. I, I know what it was like. But still, currently, who wants choice? Who of you, I'm a psychiatrist, who of you wants a choice between a run-down, filthy, understaffed hospital and a well-run, um, clean, and uh, well-functional hospital? Who wants that? Nobody wants it, just wants the best hospital. Who really wants 37 uh, types of washing powder in the supermarket? Who really wants that? And who needs that? I don't, I don't know what we really have a choice on. If I see my, my, my children who now can't afford um, an own, uh, they can't get on the property ladder anymore, though they have got a privileged father as a, as a professor, who wants that choice? Freedom, independence of what? The, the independence doesn't mean only from something, but to do something. Now, social mobility is going down. We, our choices in life to, re, or the, the possibilities to do things are more and more restricted. Yes, we may have the choice whether we want to spend the next weekend in Budapest or in Mallorca, if that's really what, what makes you happy in life. I don't have a choice. Sometimes we, um, we are asked, oh, a choice, um, who to live with. That's not a choice. I have to work very hard to seduce a partner I want. It's not, it's not a choice. So I think the choice is something that makes us more and more isolated. And that was, um, I think, uh, very well illustrated by, by the recent uh, corona, uh, corona crisis. And now I changed it a bit to my own field. There are, there are millions of young people out there who couldn't see their, couldn't see their um, friends, couldn't uh, do the experience that you usually have as an adolescence, no sex, no sports, no something. And now they feel sad and anxious and so on. So what do we do? We say we, they have a mental health problem. So the problem is in here, between their, their ears, as if that would help us anything. But that is, if you look up the, 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 the newspapers, that's just how we, how we portray it. So a clear social pr uh, um, problem that we can only overcome if we have structures in which they can go out again and make friends and so on is turned into something that patho pathologizes these young people into a problem that, they, that will stick with their life. They couldn't cope. They have a mental health problem. That's our individualism. They didn't ask for that. So I came from two different angles. I'm not sure there's a pursuit of independence. Okay, may I just comment, since he was commenting on, on my, uh, what I said. Uh, choice, 
I wasn't speaking about washing powder or whatever, and I think you actually, with what you were ending up on, confirmed what I was saying, because all these young people who are isolated in a COVID quarantine, they didn't have a choice. So they didn't have any chance of having the independence of choice. Choice, which I mean in this context, would be for example about, do you want to live with your parents or not? Do you want to live with your sister and her family? Do you want to marry or not, have children or not? That's for me, the kind of choice of how do you want to depend. It's the choice of who you want to depend upon or what you want to depend upon. Um, and for me, yeah, that is a liberated society when you do have some choice in that. Who I want to live with is not the pursuit of independence. The what, sir? Who I want to live with is not the pursuit of independence. It's who I want to live with. It depends. Yeah. If, you, um, if you were gay, for instance, until quite recently, who you want to live with is a pursuit of independence because you wouldn't have been allowed to do it. Yeah, and if you want to depend upon the person, maybe as women we see it slightly different because as women historically have depended upon somebody uh, once they are together and, you know, at least still quite often today there is a, a different trajectory for women. But anyway, yeah, let's get yeah. on to the question. Okay, well... <laughs> Um, the first chapter of our discussion, and we'll return to those issues which have become central, um, is whether the desire for independence and the need for community are both fundamental to make us human, to what makes us human, rather. So, but I want to, because um, it's very interesting, these kind of definitions and distinctions, and I'd like to start by distinguishing solitude from independence. Do you need solitude to, to think independently, to be a a creative writer to to have space to think i personally i need quite a lot of yeah alone time when i write and so but for long periods of my time of my life i have lived um with a man or uh, and if he respects me enough and respects that need for me to go yeah, into a room on my own and work and not be disturbed because, you know, he thinks it would be nice that we go for a walk together and gets angry if I'm not. So, you know, it works if, yeah, if my space is respected. And this thing that you can't stop fiction just because dinner has to be served at a certain hour or what. But it has worked for me in some relationships really well. Others, it hasn't. Because even though, you know, the man I was with might have said, oh, wonderful, you're right, and this is great, but... Yeah, he liked the idea of me being a writer, but not the actual day-to-day -day thing that it demands your time, your passion, your attention particularly. And it's amazing how many people I've even experienced with certain friends who can't cope with the fact that your attention is somewhere else. And maybe because I've never been different, so I don't know how it is to experience that. Maybe it is terrible to be next to somebody who's drawn into something so much. But... I can't change that. It's how I am and how I function. And, and luckily, I have also met enough people who are perfectly fine with it. And particularly, you know, I lived with an American composer for, for some years, and, and he had his own attention sphere. And he was a night person, worked at night, and I was a day for work day, and then we could cross over. Um, so I think you can have a lot of independence in a relationship. I also think, even though I've never economically depended you know, on, on a partner, um, I actually do think if the partner respects you enough, you can have a very independent life, even if you are economically dependent. You know, if you somehow he feels okay to pay for the house or whatever because your economic situations are like that. So, um, and also in society, 
you can take part and still be independent as long as you know it gets back to that choice i feel you know if you choose to have a job that demands you a certain number of hours every day and you can choose another job if you don't like that job then you you have an independence in it but if you're forced to simply to put food on the table to your children, you don't have much choice on the kinds of jobs you have. You clean uh, houses for other people, and uh, or for racial or socioeconomic reasons, you don't have an education. Then you don't have choice. You don't have independence. Okay, and Stefan, you're making a positive case for community and being together. But can can we test the limits of that a bit? Is there a case to be made also for solitude for encouraging? Um, independence. Yeah, also for me, solitude and independence are, are different, uh, different kettle of fish. But just take, I, I said, uh, talked earlier about the external world that changes how we live. Just take the threat of the environmental decay that threatens humankind. You can say, now ah, that's, that's really my, my choice whether I want to drive a car or not. Um, I, I, that this can't be in any state telling me what to do. Um, we can do that, but we will not survive. The planet will survive, but we, or we may survive on Greenland and a few people who, who, who can afford that. So there are simply external circumstances that we can only, that we can only cope with as a community or not. Um, you, you can't say, oh, I go out, whether I drive on the left-hand side or right-hand side of the, of the road, that should really be my decision. I mean, I don't want to be anyone telling me uh, this simple thing. It's my responsibility. I drive where I want. We need a community to, for survival. And I think the environmental threat is, is and the climate crisis, a good example why, I mean, intellectually, I think all of us understand that. But we still, I'm here with my car. So um, um, still, we fall for that ideology of independence and choice and, and what have you and destroy ourselves. So um, that's for me the contradiction. What, what do we need as a community to survive and to live well, whether, I'm, um, uh, whether, whether uh, I go for solitude at some day, that has nothing to do with, in, to, for me, that has nothing to do with independence. Um, in, and again, one also always needs to ask independence from something or independence to do something. And that's not the same thing. Sorry. Thank that, you. That's the nub of it, though, Go isn't on. it? Yeah. That, that's, the, that's the real issue, is where our own individuality or independence clashes against what we, you know, how much we want to be part of a society or how much we think other people should be making decisions for us or whether we're making it as a collective. That's where the, the rub is. Um, and, and, and quite clearly, there, there is an issue there where we need to collaborate with each other. But increasingly, we've become aware of ourselves as having our own destiny, having our own autonomy, having however we look to frame it narratively in our heads. We've got our own thing that we want to do and how much we're willing to collaborate and join together. And, you know, this is, this is a real permanent issue, isn't it? And, and how then we structure that. I mean, I also see the crux to me. It comes down to a lot. How much do you bend that sense of, I guess, I in loss, for, for a better word, that we have? to the so-called the betterment of 
your, the community around you and how much choice do you have in that? I mean, I spend a lot of time in Africa and Pakistan where the family structures and community structures are very different. People are very interdependent, which means there's much less choice on a daily basis on how to live, on, again, who you marry, if you have kids or not. And in Africa, the concept, or the old you know, African way of living, the concept of living on your own just doesn't even exist. They would think you're crazy. You know, why would you ever choose to, to be on your own? You're part of the group. And the worst punishment would be to send you out of the group. Um, and so I think it's also very cultural. But if I want to challenge you on your independence, Stefan, it's like, OK, it's not about do we drive on the left or on the right, but it's about you, know, you chose to be in England rather than in Germany. You did have the independence to make that choice. But it could also have been at a different time of history that the community or society made that choice for you, so, so you wouldn't have it. But I think we are, we are more discussing on the near social basis, as I understood the premise for, for our debate. Do we need, do we get more depressed by, you know, trying all the time to live on our own because we don't want anybody to, to infringe on our choices and our space? Because I think that depression that they quote, I haven't done the statistics on, but it's coming more from the fact that if you live on your own, you're often not invited into the kind of family settings that function best, you know, couple, couple or family, family. So you become an outsider. And the loneliness connected with being an outsider um, or being ostracized as the outsider that's where the depression then comes in. It's not living alone or not, per se. I, I, can I just respond to that? I think we, we are here all um, probably afterwards having a glass of champagne and all middle class and then uh, very well. I think this, this talking about um, choice almost gets a bit cynical. People don't go to a food bank because they have a choice. I mean, increasingly, we live in a society where, where people simply this type of choice, yeah, whether I want to live in Germany or England, that's for me as a privileged person. But even I might want to live in Kensington. In a, in a, in a, it's not about choice. And I think it's, it, it, it's, yeah, it's typically this type of um, ideology that drives the elites that most of us are probably one way or another part of. And I've got a very bad feeling about that. Okay. okay. I, mean, well, I, no, I want to take issue because I think it's a really weird, aggressive way you're coming at it now. You have no idea about my background. My mother came as a Red Cross child from Austria to Denmark. I grew up as the first one with an academic degree in my family. I've, fought. I've always paid my own way. I worked since I was 13. So I do know about independence and choices. And for me, independence came from being able to earn my own money from a very early age. But the people with a food bank, it's for me exactly what I'm going at, these existential questions, that people who have no choice but to go to the food bank for food for their kids, they don't have independence. So, so it's very much the crux of the matter. Do we make a society where people have choices uh, to be dependent on a food bank or not? We, they don't have it at this moment. If they're poor in Denmark, most people, not the refugees, but Danish Danes, they have a choice because we have a welfare system that works for the Danish Danes, unfortunately not for refugees. But I think we are, we are more looking at, as human beings, are we dependent on being close to each other? I think COVID, for example, showed us that we 
don't function well when we are forced to live on our own. But when it's a choice, it's different. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of choice and necessity, moving on to the next section of my um, my plan here, um, that, you know, would, should we learn from other cultures which, um, which do live together and, and embrace this um, more sort of um, interconnected, intergenerational style of living? Um, and I guess with an aging population, then our hand might be forced um, increasingly when, um, when we need to take care of the old and so on. But then, so what, what do we gain and what do we lose from intergenerational um, cohabitation? Can we talk a little bit more about what it's like to, to live with people who are very different from you, who come from different generations, different attitudes, different needs? Stefan, do you have anything to say or something from your yes, research I mean, about that? Um, yesterday, we, we talked about that. If you go to some places in Southern Europe or in South America, you will still see um, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon, three generations going out and having a walk. And in London, you don't see that. That has gone. So um, I'm sure that is better for the mental health of people. There are even good results showing that. But I mean, it's very difficult to go back to say, oh, should we do that? So. If we want to live in communities, we probably have to find new ways of doing that. I think we, we do benefit a lot from what they call vertical grouping from chi child in education to, to adults. I think intergenerational living is very helpful, but unfortunately what seems to end up happening is that um, certain people end up, end up with the burden of care, and that's usually the adult female in the house. Um, who ends up looking after everybody. So at the moment, it's not working very well. We're not, we're not looking after our caregivers um, as, as well as the people who need care. So I think there definitely are new models and ways of um, structuring things so that we can, we can share care, which isn't just a burden because I think you, you, you do learn both ways. We learn from our elders. We learn from people younger than us and, and all the way around, I think you know there's so many interesting things about our about our lives that we can share and give each other but um that at the moment we're, we're failing our older people um and um also failing a lot of our adult females who are who are ending up trying to trying to do everything but i'm also interested in the kind of cultural differences that result from situations where there is that kind of intergenerational living and particularly in terms of I mean, there's this aspect of, you know, groupthink versus individual thinking that's, that's a part of this discussion. And I, I know it's really hard to make cultural generalizations, but, but I wonder if we can say something about um, whether cultures where intergenerational cohabitation is very common, um, whether there's a difference there in terms of, um, you know, diversity of, of views, um, if there's an emphasis on, in, on uh, political individuality, on you know, entrepreneurialism even. Can we make those kinds of cultural judgments? I think, yeah, I think generalizations are very difficult. Um, I've seen in Pakistan, yeah, family, intergenerational family livings, you know, it, where it works very well, you know, and the children are not forced into marriages, even if they're arranged or semi-arranged, you know, the kids have choices. And so it functions well, they choose families that will function well together. And I've also seen where it doesn't function. And, you know, 
we all know about the cases here yeah, where girls get killed or because they try to marry somebody, the family doesn't want them to, or they're not allowed to work, you know, where there are lots of strong Pakistani educated women allowed to work and very independent. But it is at a higher social stratosphere generally, uh, not at the lower ones. So I think in the generational living in a modern world context, again, works only where there is a respect within the group for, for each other's choices. In Denmark, I mean, I've, there is a new type of intergenerational living. Of course, again, that is for the more wealthy who try to buy a property, you know, that's big enough that you can have the parents have one area, the children another. So you live very close by each other, but you each have your, your space. And that seemed to work well for some families. I might not want it, you know, in mine. And But, yeah, I, I do think that can work really well for some. And I think it's what is wonderful is for kids when their grandparents are close by to, you know, take care of them that... And for the grandparents also to have that closeness is for many. It's not for everybody, but for many that works really well. Um, but you won't want it if it's forced on you and then becomes like a convention you have to live in a certain way. I say as, a, as a researcher, uh, whether one likes it or not, but these closely knit religious communities, intergenerational and very, very tightly read, have the highest quality of life. One may not like it and say, oh, nothing for me because I would like to. But um, all research shows that, that people living in that are the happiest of us. And that you say cross-culturally or here in, in Britain? No, I mean, that's across cultures, yes. But then I guess you have to distinct, you know, you have to also explore other kinds of output, you know, consequences and, you know, in terms of the kind of culture, that's um, fostered intellectual culture, in, you know, um, political culture. I don't know. It depends what you're measuring as the um, as the ideal um, outcome. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm just talking about mental health and subjective quality yeah. of life. So how how satisfied people are with their life and whether they're depressed or not, and and so and again, individual individual outcomes. That's how we unfortunately measure that. But they they are highest usually in these communities like the Amish or some Jewish communities. Um, again, from the outsider, maybe scary, but when you because, go into because it, because human beings crave structures, because we we uh, a lot of us do very well with a structured, ordered life and less choice. Yeah, I think they crave probably support, trust. Trust is is a, is a very important uh, important issue, almost identical when you when you measure very complicated. Uh, ways of social capital in a society. You can also just ask how, how much people trust each other. So very, very mm. important, very important concept. Trust, affection, empathy, respect, dignity. That's what we live for. Uh, well, yes, but obviously religious faith in religious leaders, is in, certainly in this country, um, is misplaced often. Yeah, I guess, I guess what I was saying, yeah, there's, there's an issue about conformity as well. As well as well-being, yeah. There's a yeah, don't shoot the messenger. No, no, I'm, I think I'm it's just, in, yeah. just uh, no. I think it's interesting what, to explore what it, you know, what yes. what outcome are you aim, aiming for in a in a society? I think it's, um, yeah, it's also about expectations. If you've grown up in a society where there are limited possibilities, but you're okay somehow with that, then that feels very safe. And and again, there that safety is a happy. I think. It's interesting also to, to talk about what is our biological needs as human beings. 
because definitely we've been sitting for too long on our own. You can have almost that need to be in a room with other human beings. And if you think of the Austrian case of, uh, I can't remember her first name, but Kampusch, this girl who had been 10 years kept basically in a basement by, by this guy from, she, from the age of 10. And um, she said that she had a need, such a need for physical presence. And even though he was abusing her sexually and beating her up and so on, she asked sometimes to sleep next to him. I mean, she explained that later when she was freed. And I think it's incredibly intelligent that she, you know, at that age, was she 19 when she was freed, or so, could look back and say that she knew she had that need. So she wanted to sleep next to him sometimes. Yeah, and sorry, that's down I, to this very basic Yeah, I would fully agree. We are, not, we are not born to be on, on our own. But that, I think, again, I say something as a researcher, when you put mice into a cage with nothing or with a slight electrical shock, so I go to the slight electrical shock. So we all, we all want some stimulation, something that happens around us. So that alone is not that the craving for the social, for the social context. But I, I fully agree. Beings that are meant to live on our own. I mean, we couldn't live on our own. Nobody can live on our own. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't produce any of what, I, what I'm wearing. Um, I think we, we have to live in societies. Okay. Well, let's just take um, spend a few minutes thinking about um, the future and whether it's going to be increasingly isolated or connected. And we can't talk about the future without talking about technology. And, you know, we know that technology means that we're alone even when we're with others. I've noticed now if you go in a lift, everyone avoids eye contact, which I think is a new thing in the last few years. Um, but when you're on your own, it's hard to be fully alone because you're connected via Zoom or, or WhatsApp or whatever. So, but also that itself can produce loneliness because um, we're more atomized with our screens. So can we talk a bit about technology and the impact that that, that might have? Sophie, what, what's your take on Well, we, we talked about it a little bit before and I'd be fascinated to know what everybody here thinks about um, their relationship with technology and, and whether it's a useful future tool or a burden for us all. Um, I'm slightly addicted to to my technology. I find it very difficult to put it down, leave it. Um, I, uh, but I'm sure also that it makes me distracted and um, probably less productive. Um, but I really like it, it because of the endorphins that it gives me to be connected with so many people and ideas. And, you know, it's amazing to me this opportunity to find out about that, something I want to know about straight away, or ask somebody that, or speak to somebody miles away. And so uh, the future, I see us definitely being more, more, more connected in, a, in an actual sense of uh, a virtual sense, but that is an actual thing where we will be communicating with each other very easily. Um, but I still hope that we will still have our bodies with each other, that we need that intimacy too. I don't see that there has to be a conflict. I certainly don't want to be locked in a box with my computer forever. Um, but I, I, I'd love to think of them coexisting. And, you know, the benefits and opportunity. I went back to school in my 30s. I could only do that because of the internet um, and went to, ended up doing a PhD on the road, which I could only do because of all the things that I can access on my phone. Stefan, what's the connection between well-being and these new forms of connection? Oh, um, 
You first ask about technology, which That's is not I the mean. same, is yeah. not the same as connecting, because I think the real the real revolution is uh, a bit ahead of us, and you never know when it's coming. It can be very soon. It can take a, a bit longer. But the real revolution is when the art artificial intelligence is good enough to give us partners and therapists and and as identities, when they learn to interact with us in the way we want, much easier than with my real partner, because I will never contradict anything I say, and uh, will always, uh, will never be tired, never be in a bad mood. Um, um, I mean, it, many people write about artificial intelligence, and some think it's, it's around the corner, some think, oh, well, not so quickly. And as we could see with the apps, when it's when it happens, then it happens very quickly. But I think that's the real challenge of technology that may make us even more isolated than we are now. Jana, I want, you may have something to say on that, on that, but also I was thinking about the kind of Silicon Valley view, vision of the future where we're all living in our pods, you know, in our co-living, co-working spaces. And um, I don't know, are we, is it time to rethink the nuclear family? Is, are, are, are a lot of these arrangements now breaking down? And is that good or bad? Um, to take it in layers, I mean, not being a machine stormer, and I absolutely, of course, also see the usefulness of the internet and so on, but I've gone off all social media, and the peace of mind I have not been on it. I am a strong believer in that we as human beings, we are biological, we are physical beings, and therefore, if we can inform our perception of the world we live in from our own sensual uh, impressions, I think it's much healthier for us than getting so many images in from the screen all the time that we have not, again, chosen because they come up uh, from all sorts of different sources and our brains don't have the capacity to work through the number of impressions we get. I think that's part of why so many people get so stressed or get ADHD and all these things. But the main thing is, um, well, we can't turn off technology. I, I think it would be an illusion if I say, okay, let's uh, let that be my agenda. We work for uh, to close it off. Maybe something happens because of climate change and so that actually will make it impossible in the future to have the internet because the amount of power it uses is so colossal. I don't know, floats may cut um, cables. I lived in New York at the time when there was the, the storm that um, cut the electricity. So you can say in, in this modern world, I think it was 2015 or 14, you had Manhattan, with no, um, oh, the southern part of Manhattan, it was half of Manhattan, with no electricity for more than a week, and no mobile network or internet for three weeks. If that, you can have that in the most modern economy of this world. You can imagine it, bigger floods, storms to come may cut the internet, and I won't be the one to be unhappy about it. But, um, but still, Yes, I absolutely recognize it does connect people also in societies that are more constraining with the outside world. It gives so many opportunities to say about studying and so, but I just think in our modern world, there could be other ways of getting some of those opportunities that didn't have the negative connotations that the internet have gotten, or maybe there's a whole different way of designing it. But what my fear with the screen is that the moment we experience something through a screen, our compassion 
somehow goes as very, very little room because we can't act on that compassion when we see people suffering somewhere. So, and that stifles the compassion because we see too much that we can't act upon. And suddenly, therefore, if we see something in front of us, we become so used to not acting on compassion. So I think, unfortunately, that thing of that system that connects us to the whole world disconnects us from the near world. Well, that was an interesting discussion. Do you think, Darcy? It was. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ir.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.